Hey everybody, thanks for joining us. This is the Low Code Approach. Uh, and today we are joined by Wendy. Huh. Wendy, how do you pronounce your last name? It, it's Haddad. It's like huh and then dad. Okay. Wendy Haddad, who is a senior <laughs> cloud solutions architect at Microsoft, tons of background in low code and low code governance, uh, and a rather interesting history. And uh, let's actually start with that. Can you can you give us an introduction of kind of like how you got into low code? Uh, and how you landed at Microsoft as a CSA. You're going to laugh. Um, the story starts when I'm nine years old. My parents decided that it was good to sign me up for competitive robotics. And Dean Kamen, who invented the Segway and diabetic insulin pump, has a competition called First Lego League. So it goes back to nine-year-old playing with Legos. And I was the youngest person on the team. And I got left out of all the cool, let's build the robot, let's do the research stuff. And I, I you know, kept getting pushed away. And I was like, someday I'm going to be the most important person on this team. And in all my nine-year-old wisdom, I figured out that nobody wanted to program. And programming was literally like dragging and dropping. The newest one is like NXTG or whatever, but it was a visual software, very similar to Power Automate. You drag and drop visual elements on the screen, and that's your programming language. And so I was like, I'm going to learn this. I'm going to be the most important person. And so competed for six years and worked my way up. And I wouldn't say it was actual programming, but just learned all of those concepts. And then trained, I judged and coached for another six years. Uh, and then I actually wound up taking a detour. I wound up uh, running a and creating an educational technology department at a university. So detour from low code. But from there, went to a Fortune 500 entertainment company and was doing customer success and training and adoption for various software products and was hired for non-Microsoft products and very quickly switched over to Microsoft. And I just I discovered Power Automate and I fell in love. Um, a friend of mine, uh, Rex, calls it playing with digital Legos, which resonated with my nine-year-old background. And uh, I, I loved the idea that I could create automation to do more. I've got a productivity background myself. And, and so I started just building things for my team and seeing benefit there. And then said, I, I got to get involved with this to start a volunteering for stretch projects and help create a center of excellence and community and started doing training sessions. Um, from there, I was actually asked to become a service manager. Officially, it was SharePoint I think I was hired for. And very quickly, it became over 30 services over my my four years in the role of service manager across Microsoft. So anything from SharePoint to Power Platform to Azure, so planner you know, to do, which really was kind of a fun global mindset, but I kept weeding Power Platform in there somewhere. I was having fun with it. Um, and then Microsoft came calling and offered me this role to do, you know, work with customers in their adoption and training consulting and removing roadblocks for adoption for Power Platform and was pretty passionate about this this space and was needing a change and thought this was an interesting adventure. So I've been here about seven months, but I'm loving it so far and I'm really enjoying this space around low code, no code and just a variety of seeing now how the Power Platform is using different companies and businesses across the world. Nice, that's, that's cool. I think you at nine years old and me at nine years old are two opposites i i was trying to figure I was gonna out say, which... how did you get into low code no code because oh well it started when i was nine years old and i was trying to determine what's the best ninja turtle but like <laughs> no i much later in life much later in life i um 
Thanks for asking, by the way. I uh, stumbled across into SharePoint, like most SharePoint admins do. They are voluntold that they need to go and work on it. So I did that for a while as a SharePoint admin, SharePoint developer. And, you know, workflow is always a huge component of uh, SharePoint. You need to automate things to be successful within SharePoint. So I I came across another uh, low-code automation company, worked there for about a decade wearing numerous hats like technical enablement manager. So I build out curriculum for them, uh, Mern stack development for them, just a, a, a pre and post sales engineering. So a whole bunch of different roles, a bunch of fun stuff. But the entirety of the time, you see the impact of low code on organizations. And just like you, you know, there's Power Platform and Microsoft, and it's so attractive. There's so many cool tools and features that can be used within it. And it, it's super exciting. So I jumped at the chance to, to so work. I'm with curious. I know you're interviewing me, but I'm going to interview you back. So <laughs> Ooh, boy. are you, were you formally trained in programming or development or any of this? I know you said low code. My, my degree in college, I was a music major. Everything has been pretty much self-taught. Um, I got a music scholarship and changed my major to music to pay my way through. Um, and so it's, it's, I would not consider myself a programmer or a developer, even though I trained them and I worked very closely with them throughout my career. I'm, I'm curious about your journey or have you gone more of the, the formal training and now you're dipping your toe back in low code or? No, I'm, I'm what you would consider like a street coder, right? Uh, did a boot. Are you, were you formally trained in programming or development or any of this? I know you said low code. My, my degree in college, I was a music major. Everything has been pretty much self-taught. Um, I got a music scholarship and changed my major to music to pay my way through. I would not consider myself a programmer or a developer, even though I trained them and I worked very closely with them throughout my journey. Or have you gone more of the, the formal training and now you're dipping your toe back in low code or... No, I'm I'm what you would consider like a street coder, right? Did a boot camp, did go to university for uh, IT and network administration. Quickly realized I hated network admin work, and I did have a programming class on there, and it was coding with uh, Visual Basic, and that should give okay. you a timeline of how old yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah. And okay. so I I built a scientific calculator with that, and felt like a god, and I wanted to <laughs> continue. Uh, programming, and I think the good part about that, though, is you some you learn some computer science fundamentals, and you understand how to build solutions either using conventional development languages and frameworks or low code, and you're able to translate that between the two to build these robust, you know, almost enterprise ready solutions that you know take into account everything from proper development techniques to governance and, and security in uh, the background of it and data structures and, and data types yeah. too. So there's there's a whole lot to take from it and a whole lot that can translate between the two. But I am like gobbling up all the time on this. So let's go back to the interesting person in this conversation. You mentioned you weren't a developer, but you did train people to be successful with low code. What did that look like? How did that interaction go? And how did you set up those that may have had no development background, low code or pro code, to be successful to use low code tools like Power Platform? It's an interesting question. I think it's a bit of a journey. I tell people my superpower is being able to speak two languages, right? I can I can speak in terms of the like super technical, let me work with your engineers and your architects and your developers. And then I'm able to translate that into 
you know, something anyone can understand. And I think it's really just because I'm not afraid to ask the dumb questions and be like, I don't get that. Let's, let's simplify that or restate it back. Uh, to be honest with you, it, a lot of it has been knowing how to research and, and, you know, just growing up and competing different, you know, work projects, learning how to research myself and self-educate. But I've also been surrounded by incredibly smart people, whether on the power platform side or just development side and thinking through, you know, engineers and architects and developers I've worked with in the past who, you know, I think if, if you're willing to put the time in, they're, they're willing to share their knowledge with you if you know how to ask the right questions. And so uh, even, even at Microsoft, I've rewritten like the Power Apps class here. I don't believe any concept is too hard to learn. It might be harder because I'm, I don't have that background, but in some ways I'm advantaged because now I know how to explain it, right? I have to wrestle through the questions myself. Some of it, like the Power Apps class, I actually reworked it because I made a ton of mistakes. I jumped into my first app. I designed the app without really designing my data source bad idea, right? And so I'm like Frankensteining this whole thing. I was just mocking up something very excited that I could like, okay, what if we use Power Apps or whatever? I never expected it to become the production app for a major project. It took off and it wasn't scalable and it was a complete mess. And then my developer friends coming in very gently, Wendy, you know, you can't build it this way. You need to think through your, your I built on SharePoint list, right? You, can, you need to think through your SharePoint list and not put spaces in the column names and you know, all that jazz, right? And so a lot of us learning by mistakes and then, you know, being able to reflect on that and capture the mistakes as you make it. And, you know, I'm like, if I'm, if I'm making a mistake, I bet you everybody else has the same question and may just be afraid to answer it. So I try to teach my classes, assuming that everyone's going to make the same mistakes I did. So let me walk you through that thought process. As an old uh, manager of mine used to say, put the cookies on the lowest shelf, right? I'm always quick to acknowledge when I don't know something. And so there's areas where I can say, I can speak about a 50,000 foot level of what's possible. But if you want to start coding or developing, I need to either take some time and get up to speed or loop in someone else. There is strong relationships and partnerships that come with it too. But, but definitely, you know, I think that thinking through the pro thought process of, I've never done this before. I'm, I'm what we call a citizen developer, right? Or a business developer. And I have thoughts around that term with personas, but. I just wanna, um, I wanna let our listeners know that air quotes were strong with those terms that you put out in case yeah. they never yeah. see a video. Well, let me, let me go there. I just having come as a former customer, I think the citizen developer term is appropriate, but confusing. So I tend to, break it out into different personas that the power platform is for. If you think about it, first of all, it's for the end users, right? Ultimately, we are building things that other people are going to use and benefit from. It could be an app, it could be a website, it could be a workflow or something else. And sometimes we're the consumers of our own product, but sometimes you've got people who have no idea what a power app is. It's just something that they go to online or on their phone and it does it and that's all they care about. And then you have what I'm going to break citizen developer into two different groups. So citizen developer, if I can, I know you're in marketing, but if I can repurpose the, the oh, term alarms are going off right I'm now. I'm going to say, I know I'm going to be kicked off the island here, but um, short, short Microsoft career. But, um, you know, if I take citizen developers, I have worked in my time with people who they're not afraid of technology, but they're like me. They have no background, right? No formal training. They see a problem. 
they know how to Google an Excel formula, right? And push an Excel a little bit further, create a workflow and an Outlook rule or something else to do something, right? And because they're not afraid of the technology, they use it, their, their team starts relying on them more. Then you have what I would call the power user. And these are the people that I've worked with who, again, they don't have developer in their title or in their job, but I would say they're more technically inclined, kind of like what you said, a street coder, right? Um, they've, they've gone deeper. They've learned and either self-educated or maybe an old programming class. They've learned some of the best practices. They may not be formally in IT or development, but they're capable of more responsibility. It's like my toddler. You can get more responsibility as you're more capable of things. I call those our power users. So we've got our citizen developers, our power users, our end users. And then you have your formal pro developers, right? Who are bringing in Visual Studio code. They're you know, doing things with YAML and, and uh, they're modifying programming language. They're bringing their own programming language to it, expanding it. They might be Azure specialists, right? So leveraging our Azure tools, they're working together. And then all within the confines of IT, right? IT is another stakeholder in here and they can benefit from this as well. And so all of these groups are working together um, to solve similar problems. And the ratio, the amount that each, that the problem is solved by a citizen developer versus a power user or a pro developer, I think we're using the term fusion development. Now we've talked about other things as well, but that's really coming together and saying, okay, each of us lends our expertise in our areas. I've seen it done, I've done it actually, um, you know, supporting a business user who built a virtual agent. The only thing they needed help with was the authentication piece. That's, I mean, I'm not gonna say that's easy, but it's that's a very small amount of time from IT or a pro developer versus IT having to go ahead and program an entire chatbot. And yeah. so your citizen developer, who's the subject matter expert can do that and create incredible value for the company can iterate faster and fail faster. But then from a security standpoint, IT or your power user, your pro developer, who's been trained in these more advanced concepts can come and just help them over the speed bump so that they're able to build a compliant virtual agent or chatbot, right? Yeah. And so yeah. kind of really playing together is, I think acknowledging where the, going back to your question, how do you train people? It's, it's making it clear where, where things are hard and where, you know, knowing your persona and then at what point is something really intended for a persona that's more technical or has more expertise so that you know early when to engage the right people? No, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. So like there's there's a, a trend I've been mm -hmm. picking up on in, in what you've been talking about, and it kind of lends towards something we were chatting about a little bit before we started recording, which is just the how powerful platform is. And I think you actually summed it up with, you know, power power platform is more powerful than you think it is. And as you know, you're you're going into the different types of personas that can utilize it. What do you mean by that? And what are some examples that you've seen where Power Platform is just like, my goodness, like you can do some awesome stuff. This is something that I've honestly been stewing on for probably about two years. So before I joined Microsoft, um, as a service manager, I was trying to work with legal and security and operations uh, and our training teams to roll out various aspects of the Power Platform securely. And as part of that, you do security architecture reviews or you have to write, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a service manager in the middle, right? And you're working with legal on a summary of what you're doing. And so 
something called Power Apps rolls out and I'm trying to help them understand what is this? How are we positioning it? What are the guidelines? And when I talk about the, the Power Platform being more powerful, it's, I think, first of all, because one of the questions I always had to answer is who's going to be using it? And it, it is for citizen developers and it's for pro developers. There's There can be elements of pro code and no code in the Power Platform. But just kind of thinking through the wheel, like if you think about, you've got the core Power Platform, right? So that's all the marketing posters that you see. Sorry, I'm gonna pick on marketing a lot today, but that's all the like, you know what I mean? Like the, the graphic of you've got Power Apps and Power Automate, um, Dataverse, Virtual Agents, Power BI, AI Builder. Uh, we just announced Power Pages. Uh, which was broken out from from Power Apps um, and then Power FX, right? Which was also just announced. And I think now managed environments for IT admins specifically. Yeah, That's yeah. the official Power Platform, but it's just like the outer shell of the onion. And as you start peeling it back, you know, example is um, Power Apps, right? Power Apps is the name of the product. There's three types of Power Apps. There's a Canvas app, which is a Blake Canvas, right? You can, it could be really, really simple and you could use templates with it all the way up to, you know, you could integrate pro code there, right? And build very complex things. Um, I would say that's a little bit of a gray area. You have SharePoint list apps, which is more of your info path replacement, customizing those SharePoint list forms. I say that's a little bit more on the low code side. Not that you can't customize with pro code, but in terms of the intended audience, I see it more on the low code side. Model-driven apps, dependency on Dataverse, you're structuring around your data, and then Power Apps is building it for you. And so that licensing, right, requires additional licensing. But in addition, it's really more you have to know your data. And that requires Wendy not just spinning up a SharePoint list with no data structure or schema before she builds her app, right? That requires a little bit of knowledge and thought, you know, before you jump in there. I'd put that more in the power user to pro developer camp. And so you can start mapping this out. I mean, I could go around. Power Automate has Cloudflows, which is most commonly known, but we also have robotic process automation with desktop flows. And then a brand new tool, Process Advisor, that has task mining. So you can record user actions on a desktop and then identify options for automation. Or, and that could use either desktop or Cloudflows. Or you could go uh, process mining through event logs, right? Upload your event logs, and then we'll advise where you can have automation, uh, which is so cool. But I think we tend to think of Power Automate first being just Cloudflows, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. It's, so understanding that there's differences in each of the tool can can really help you understand and start to position. Well, it's not just about how do I position Power Automate as a whole. It's okay. How do I position Cloudflows? How do I position you know model driven apps? Right? What persona? What level of security and scrutiny? Am I putting onto that? Because that will determine how I roll out the platform and customize it for my company. So, so there's, okay, so there's multiple levels to each one of the products and, and mm -hmm. the, the feature set that's available to you as you're, you know, building out these solutions. In, in your experience and training others and, and seeing how organizations are kind of picking up uh, low-code adoption, is there, is the usual enablement journey that you like identify one of those offerings, either apps or automate or pages or, you know, whatever, and say, I'm going to go from end user to 
citizen developer to power user to pro dev on this and I just want to become great at this before I move on to the next one? Or is it I want to be good at all of these, great at none? Or should somebody specialize in one and then translate those learnings to the other offerings in Power Platform? Is there no recommended journey? You you do you. You figure it out. Well, I hate what, to say it, but it's probably a little bit of the latter. It, it oh, no. depends. First of all, it depends on if you're asking me that question from a developer or a citizen developer, the maker, yep. or if lens, or if you're asking me that question from the IT admin lens. From the maker lens, it, it really depends on your uh, on the problem you're trying to solve. I wouldn't recommend learning a technology that's not going to help you solve the, the business problem, right? It delays the value, it adds complexity, and it adds frustration and confusion. I think having a general understanding, and by the way, um, all of this, like knowing what is in the Power Platform, if you go to the Microsoft Learn docs and you search Power BI, you can actually see a table of, okay, here's all the pieces of Power BI, or I just did this last night, PowerFX. I'm not a programmer, right? I understand the concept, PowerFX. FX is around the the, the expression language. Mm-hmm. It used to be a, a Canvas app, and now we're making it the expression language of the Power Platform. And now we're doing a bring your own code a little bit or at like a, an open source approach to that. Um, all of the features are in a list. You can even just get a short list of what you enable and how you position that. That's all in the Microsoft Learn docs um, to, to peel back the onion, if you will, on each of these. So from a user standpoint, I think having a general understanding of what are the capabilities and knowing that the Power Platform is zero cliff, right? So it can scale up to Azure. And, you know, if you if you need more advanced tooling or you can use data gateways or ALM with solutions, et cetera, command line interface, right? Um, with other things going more truly into the pro dev, pro code, knowing where those limits are and the tools available at top if they're good, but knowing how to build those different. For an IT admin, I would say that there's a certain level of power platform access that you are is included in your basic licensing, E3 or E5 when you're paying for an email account, right? And that's really more intended for personal productivity or non-business critical usage. Um, there's premium licensing and offering and managed environments is one of those services, right, where you've got premium governance solution to allow more security and more support and more power in the power platform if you pardon the pun a little bit. But if you're trying to invest in more business critical solutions or, you know, complex solutions there, use more you know, application lifecycle management and use more you know structured industry standard approach to governance and security. So I would say first of all, understand we have got a, a like a criticality matrix that we we post on some of our Microsoft docs, kind of walk you through. It's just a, a guide, but every company has to determine for themselves, right? What risk tolerance, what they want to allow. You know, I, I could have a a tech only company, a development company. Your citizen developers can probably run circles around the you know citizen developers in a healthcare industry or you know whatnot, right? And so within reason, figuring out like what's included in my license and what am I using for personal productivity? Let's define personal productivity and start there. And that's across all of them. So I would say cloud flows, Canvas apps, SharePoint list apps, and Canvas apps with guidance, right? Certain connectors or whatnot, um, you know, maybe not, you know, Dataverse for Teams, 
the Power BI service, the online service, um, and then the built-in expressions, and then virtual agents inside of Teams, right? Those would be kind of across the gamut. Some of the really no code to very low code, easier entry aspects that likely, if, as long as you have basic security, poses little risk. Yeah. And then you can start from there rolling on and saying, okay, it, Power Apps or Power Automate solves the majority of our business needs. Let's start focusing on model-driven apps or, you know, let's do authenticated virtual agents we can embed outside of Teams, right? And yeah. figuring out what that is and then saying, okay, now we've gone through the criticality, we've positioned it against personas, we have a support model, we've thought through that. And then you start just, it's a cycle, you start rolling it out and, and maturing it, but you're not trying to boil the ocean. You're maturing each individual piece of the product, you know, as it makes sense for you, it's like a buffet, right? You're picking and choosing there as well. Nice, nice. So we are definitely going long on this podcast. So we're going to actually go and have to do a Second one, a follow-up, because there's lots more that I want to chat to you about, especially this term that you used before called service manager. And I think you hinted at a few of the, the aspects of the role, but I want to dig deeper into that. And, and hopefully you can tell us a little bit about what that prior life was like. How did the service manager role help organizations you know, balance between security and innovation and, and things like that. So we hope everybody joins us for the next one. It should be coming out shortly. And Wendy, Haddad, thank you so much. We're, we're going to chat a, again in a little bit. Sounds good. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. Thank you.